everybody welcome to the goods a film podcast we are extending out the holiday season just a little bit today Uh, as we record this it's the day before new year's eve still december so i thought we could squeeze in one more christmas pick dan's here with me i think he'll tell you it's actually more than one christmas pick (laughs) hey brian uh it is indeed i have watched four versions of A Christmas Carol in the last 18 hours. So I am ready to rock. You got it coursing through your veins. (laughs) You eat, sleep, and breathe A Christmas Carol because that is the focus of our show this time around. Specifically, I wanted to focus on musical adaptations of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. It seems like everybody has done A Christmas Carol adaptation at one point. It's pretty ubiquitous. I wanted to narrow down our consideration just to musical versions. I think that makes sense. It's interesting watching all four that I watched are all musicals. And it's, of course, very interesting to see how they take the well-trod story and extract musical beats from it and things they do similarly and things they do differently. But you're right that this is a very widely adapted novella, I guess it is. It's been all over the place. I I actually haven't seen all that many. Like I probably nearly doubled the number of ones that I've seen uh, in the past, as I mentioned, the past day. So it is kind of interesting how how prominent it is. Like it, I can't really think of anything that's been adapted more often than a Christmas Carol. Yeah, I and I kind of wonder why that is. I I have some notes here that I wanted to share about possible reasons. First, though, I just wanted to say I've felt a connection to A Christmas Carol for pretty much as long as I can remember. That doesn't exactly make me unique. I've seen plenty of memes of liking such and such is not a personality trait. You know, liking Harry Potter is not a personality trait. Sure. I mean, Christmas Carol is pumped out of every screen a million different ways every single year. So that it has suffused my consciousness is not necessarily unique to me. But I have written about this story a lot in the past. I've written some blurbs on my film blog about songs from all four of the adaptations we'll be considering today. And I also wrote an extended tribute to the original book as part of my 10 Things Brian Likes series on our shared blog, earnthis.net. And I wanted to quote from Earn This briefly to start us off in our consideration about why this story has received so many countless adaptations. So back in 2014, I wrote this. Sure, it's been done to death. But that's only because A Christmas Carol remains one of Dickens's most accessible novels, as well as one of the most universally relatable fables in our cultural milieu. The miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is offered a second chance when he most needs and least deserves one. At least in this story, it's never too late for even the oldest and bitterest of us to seek redemption, turn our lives around, and become as good a man as any the good old city knew. 
That's a heartwarming notion if ever I heard one. Even if we ourselves aren't grasping covetous old sinners, sharp as a flint and solitary as an oyster, each of us has had past screw-ups which shape who we become. We see some of our faults in Scrooge's hyperbolic character and rejoice when he is offered a chance for salvation, as it suggests there may yet be hope for us, too. So I think that's the takeaway. No matter how long we talk today, that's pretty much what it's going to add up to for me. So maybe I showed my hand a little early. I think that is astute. Also a good reminder of how phenomenal the 10 Things Brian Likes series is. It's been one of my favorite things ever to read on our blog, earnthis.net. I think you're right that the theme is its so in line with how we talk about Christmas now, about this, this coming together, second chances, a warming of the cold. I also think this story in particular is just very cinematic. The ghosts, the witnessing of romance and drama. You get to look back, be sad. You also get to look forward and be hopeful. It's a little bit of everything, and it's just a story that's very easy to enjoy and identify with. So I think you got it on the nose. To be a little more callous, it's public domain, so anybody can use it. <laughs> As you said, that's the only reason we're still talking about Shakespeare is because it's free. Exactly. But, I mean, this is also a period piece, so you get some cool costumes. There's time travel, like you said, ghosts, death, romance. There's a lot of class commentary. This, this could be practically Parasite. <laughs> it's that level of rich versus poor at points. Yeah. Agreed. But like I said, today we're specifically focusing on musical adaptations, of which there have been a pretty sizable handful. We're looking at four versions, but we are mostly focusing on the 1970 adaptation titled Scrooge, directed by Ronald Neem and starring Albert Finney as Scrooge. Now, this is a version that I didn't find out about until I watched a Nostalgia Critic video online in, I think, 2011. Like when I was working on my very first Christmas music blog series on a Facebook page that I put together in 2011, I, I watched this video and that focused on the Ghost of Christmas Present song in this version which is called I Like Life. And that was just kind of my first preview of this film. And I finally stumbled across a high quality version of this on YouTube like two years ago and watched it super late at night, just as a movie that I had never really been exposed to before other than a two minute clip. I was surprised and impressed and I knew I wanted to talk about it it was years after I had done my series on favorite movies and I wanted to get some discussion of it in the mix. Should I ever work on a series that expands movie coverage a little bit beyond my top, top favorites. Hence, this has been on the table as a goods nominee since before this podcast was around. I had never heard of this version. It is one of dozens as we've already discussed. I think an interesting bit of context for this one is, I think it was made by the same production company that did Oliver, another Dickens musical adaptation a year earlier. 
So I think it was like, oh, our new Bonanza will be musical versions of 19th century novels written by Charles Dickens, I guess. Right. I am not sure which personnel carried over. I got to look that up. But the style of this movie definitely owes a lot to Oliver. It's Dickensian musical theater with large crowd ensemble dance numbers in the street. So I think they, Oliver actually won Best Picture. I'm sure you probably know that, but I think they wanted to strike while the iron was hot, put out something that captured that same spirit. And I think this was nominated for a couple of awards. I think Albert Finney was nominated for maybe the Golden Globe in this adaptation. And I think it got a, an Oscar adaptation too. I'm going to pull it up and see. Yeah, it was nominated for four Oscars. Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Score, and Best Song. And it was nominated for five Golden Globes, including Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Best Actor in a Motion Picture, which it actually won. Finney won that. Best Screenplay, Best Score, and Best Song. So, also got some accolades, even though it's one I haven't seen quite as much in the public consciousness as Oliver. I think it's also interesting to note that the music was composed by Leslie Bricusi. I am going to hope I pronounced that correctly. But he was also the composer behind uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which came out a year after Scrooge 1970. Also, he did the music for 1967's Dr. Doolittle, which made it onto my film favorites countdown. Oh, interesting. The first time I was watching this, I kept thinking, this music sounds familiar. Just something about it sounds like something I've heard before. And I realized that it was Dr. Doolittle. It's got this haunting, sad quality to a lot of the music. Yeah. I, I, also, Willy Wonka has a little bit of that, too. Right, right. You can definitely hear it in Willy Wonka, too. So are we ready for our innovative new recap approach sure so how are we going to recap this if do we want to mention the other adaptations that we're going to be touching on that are in this christmas carol musical extravaganza yes i think we had better thank you for pulling me back from the brink what other movies did we watch today dan so the order that i watched them in i'll just share them was scrooge which i had never seen before then I watched Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, I think is the official title. And that is an animated film. I don't have the year in front of me. An animated special. It's about an hour long. So that one's from 1962. And then the 2004 Christmas Carol the Musical, a TV film that is an adaptation of the Broadway musical scored by Alan Menken. And that is... TV movie stars Frazier himself, Kelsey Grammer, Sideshow Bob, however you want to refer to him, and curiously, Jason Alexander as Marley, who I know that he's got strong acting chops, but to me, he's always just George from Seinfeld yelling about how these pretzels are making me thirsty. So whenever I see him in anything other than that, I want him to be talking about pretzels. Yeah, we're going to talk about this some more, but... 
my exposure to this adaptation was I turned on a hotel TV at like 10.30 a.m. with an 11 a.m. checkout. And I saw just this scene with George Costanza as Marley. And I thought, this is bananas. I got to watch the rest <laughs> of this movie at some point in the future. And then the fourth adaptation was a, I think it's called The Muppet Christmas Carol. So it's the Muppet version. Um, and that one I've seen several times before. That's actually my main exposure to this story. I've never read the book. But I watched that and I wrapped just a few minutes before we started recording today. So um, if we're going to shorthand them, the 1970 is Scrooge. We got Magoo, we got Frasier, and we got Muppet. So we got our, our one-word code names for each of the four adaptations. Yep, and we have a color-coded grid for discussion purposes in a little while. And obviously, since they're all based off the Dickens novel, they all have pretty close to the same plot, but they all have their own twists. Exactly. Some leave out some things, some add some new material, but... All in all, this is going to be much more manageable than our last recap project, <laughs> where we covered four entirely different films and a TV series. Yeah, I was kind of thinking, oh, just one movie, a musical. I can I can watch that. You know, it's not that big of an ask. And then you and I got to brainstorming. Like, well, it actually would be easy to talk about multiple versions of the same story. So. Why don't we open it up a little? And then a while ago, you had mentioned the idea. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll hold that thought. But you had a, an idea for a structure, uh, a gimmick that we will get to in a bit. And I was like, well, why don't we just go for it? Why don't we just do it? And so this should be fun. Yeah, I appreciate your willingness to expand last moment. I, I know we'd workshopped this idea for a little while, but I didn't pitch the hey, we could condense the recap until yesterday afternoon, at which point Dan then had to watch three more movies. But I think it'll work out. I think it'll be okay. I think we'll be good, yeah. Because the approach we hit on is to do sort of one recap to rule them all. All of these are essentially beat for beat the same story. Every Christmas Carol retrod is going to cover the same key story beats. And so walk with us once again down memory lane as we tell the tale of Dickens's A Christmas Carol, the 1843 novella as turned and twisted and remixed a little bit through various creative minds. When the story begins, it's Christmas Eve in London, sometime in the 1800s, and the old skinflint Ebenezer Scrooge is the meanest man in London. He has a clerk named Bob Cratchit who he treats horribly. He rebuffs people trying to collect for charities and he ignores and neglects his only relative, a nephew named Fred. And beyond that, his key personality traits are that he loves money and he hates Christmas. Now we're going to kind of be inserting version specific notes that apply to the different films that we watched. Just assume that most of the story is told by Gonzo in the Muppet version, <laughs> for instance. Uh, or in Magoo, there's a frame story where they're performing it on stage. But like I said, we'll focus primarily on Scrooge 1970. That's what I originally pitched as today's selection. 
no framing or narrator in that one. Right. Here, when Scrooge first enters the scene, we get an ironic number that's going to come back later. Little little mini spoiler. Called Father Christmas, where a group of Dickensian street urchins are singing about how he's super nasty. And they're just kind of ironically calling him Father Christmas, which is British Santa. We also see in this version an extended scene of Scrooge at work. I think it's interesting that a lot of adaptations, including the original book, don't make it clear what exactly Scrooge actually does. You know, you you just hear that he's working in his counting house. Feel free to just jut in anytime, Dan, because I've thought about this a lot over the years. I'm just going to be rambling multiple times in this episode. So I I always thought it was pretty clear he was a banker of some sort where he he has loans he collects on because that's recurringly a theme. Uh, I don't know if that's in the book. Again, I haven't read it, but it adds the, the element of conflict where people need some some mercy. I've heard it. I've seen it as mortgages a couple times, but mm-hmm. I think you're about to describe the specific thing that Scrooge does, which is very interesting. Right. So yes, pretty much across the board, it's some form of money lending in adaptations. The one I watched first was Mickey's Christmas Carol. And in that one, it, he's just sitting in his counting house with a pile of money. And it's like, well, wait, is his job just to count money? <laughs> if only. But yeah, <laughs> Usually it's expanded upon that he lends out money and charges interest. So I guess that is banking. I guess that's what banking is. So makes sense. I think on the wealth ladder, he's escaped phase one, which is working hours to get your money and has ascended to phase two, which is using your money to gain more money. But he's not quite at phase three, which is the Bill Gates phase, where you can make it your full-time job to give other people your money. Right. I feel like Scrooge would maybe not be into that step. Although maybe maybe the story is him ascending to that third stage. Interesting. This is like a Bill Gates parable. I hadn't thought of that. But in this version, Scrooge 1970, Scrooge sings sing talks this number called I Hate People, where he's going through the community and we actually see the role that a moneylender plays. And despite his role as a misanthrope and him saying how much he hates everybody, he's actually super well-connected in this community as presented in this version. It's kind of in a weird, ironic way. Every, all the people doing business in the town square owe him money, but the money that he's given them is keeping their businesses going and keeping the engines of capitalism pumping. Like he has debts that are owed to him by the soup seller and the sock darners. And there's even a puppeteer and Scrooge like sticks his head in the back of his puppet (laughs) booth while he's doing a show and says, you owe me, you know, however much money or I'm taking your puppets. (laughs) I really like this bit. I think you're right. It, It hints at some complexity in the pre-transformation Scrooge where maybe he subconsciously knows or perhaps even consciously knows that as much as he's a miser he he actually is by letting his money flow out there letting some people pursue their dreams and be 
uh, members of society in, in ways that are kind of meaningful. It's like an interesting kind of clash of him being greedy, but also being the, the support of that, the, the loan, business loan to make their dreams come true. Right. I think we'll revisit this in just a little bit, but especially watching a bunch of versions right in a row, I realized that this story is like a parable on capitalism in general. And I think the different takes on the story have different things to say about capitalism and and what it does and how it works. I completely agree. I would want to talk more about that a bit later. I will say that A Christmas Carol hits very different in all that I have thought and learned about capitalism and money and wealth in 2020 than the last time I saw it, which was probably about five years ago. It's probably been about five years since I've seen any of these these movies. So, yeah, I have some thoughts on that for sure. Also here in Scrooge, we see a fair bit of Bob Cratchit going around shopping with his meager paycheck, getting things for his family for Christmas dinner and little Christmas presents and interacting with the different shopkeeps. And so while Scrooge is going around collecting his money, Bob is going around spending his, and we get a little bit of parallels between the way that the wealthy celebrate and the very poor celebrate. Like this guy in a big top hat and overcoat goes up and buys a fancy bottle of wine, and then Bob Cratchit goes around back and he buys punch mash or something that like sits in the jug and ferments and you mix it with stuff to make punch. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, he later served a glass of it for each of his kids, which I thought was kind of funny. Well, this is, you know, (laughs) the Wild West, so to speak. This is the 1840s. I mean, kids are going to work. They're they're entitled to a, a nightcap. Well, one last thought from me on this opening segment. It's actually back on the the song I Hate People. I thought that was just a hilariously on-the-nose title and uh, lyric for a song about Scrooge. It's like, well, what Scrooge is just? Eh, you know, he loves money, he hates people. Bingo, there's your song. That song, I really like the rhyming. This is not really a very musical, musical number. He doesn't sing it, per se. He's almost like rapping. <laughs> I, I think you call this style recitative. It's the Rex Harrison approach to musical numbers, where he just kind of speaks it quickly and rhythmically, and there's a lot of complex rhyming. Good music theory word. I like it. But I love a few of the rhymes they work out in this song. There's a part where he rhymes cretinous wretches with pettiness stretches with sweatiness fetches. Wow, that kind of flew past me. That is good. I like that. That's like Lin-Manuel Miranda grade. (laughs) Scrooge at this point in all adaptations retires to his homestead for the night. And we see that he keeps very miserly quarters. Like he has a few big rooms, but he doesn't heat them. He sits in his lone armchair and he eats gruel, (laughs) which... Somehow in eight years, I've never made gruel on Gauntlet, but I think we need to. Is gruel even a distinct food? I just think of it as flavorless mash. Maybe it does have a specific definition. So 
a couple episodes we talked about fruitcake and how that's kind of widely panned in different Christmas stories. But I think gruel exists in today's consciousness solely as the gross food that Scrooge eats, <laughs> which may not be fair. I've looked it up a little bit. I think it's just oatmeal. I love oatmeal. And you can, or like cream of wheat, and you can mix different things into it. But it just has such a terrible name. I know. Why would you eat something called gruel? The, the aesthetics of that word. <laughs> but Scrooge eats it because I think it's cheap. And then he uh, retires to bed, worth noting that when he arrived at his apartment, he briefly sees his door knocker take on the appearance of his dead partner, Jacob Marley. Once he's in his room, Marley appears. So I will say I have never seen an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Not to say I've particularly complete collection, but I've never seen an adaptation of Christmas Carol where they do not have the knocker turn into the partner's face. This just seems to be one of the images that the culture has latched onto is a must have as part of a Christmas Carol story. It's kind of interesting. I think if you don't have that, then you can almost see this as an, it was all just a dream situation, but that like makes pretty clear that it's ghostiness and not just uh, he dozed off into his gruel, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think it is also uh, notable to consider why Marley is doing this or was able to do this, because it almost seems like he's the ringleader of everything that's about to happen. Uh, because Marley appears before Scrooge as a ghost, and this is Scrooge's old business partner. He's wrapped in a bunch of chains, and he has locks and keys and money boxes hanging off of him. And he says that these are the chains he forged in life by his acts of greed. Basically, Marley is the ghostiest ghost we see. He's like stereotypical, goes around going, oh, and he's white and see-through. And he's like a Halloween sheet ghost. The closest thing that we get in this lineup. There's actually two of them in the Muppets. It's the two old guys that go, no, they laugh at their bad jokes. That's right. Glad you pointed that out because we have Statler and Waldorf, the old hecklers from The Muppet Show, here as the Marley brothers, Jacob and Robert. Kind of a little play on reggae musician Bob Marley. Yeah, I'm not sure when I caught that. It's too bad he doesn't sing a reggae type number there. We need more reggae Muppets. <laughs> How about a reggae musical version of A Christmas Carol? I That's would definitely right. watch that. We need more of that. Marley warns Scrooge that an even worse fate, an even bigger chain, awaits Scrooge when he dies. Luckily, Marley has arranged an out for him. He's set up a loophole. There are these three Christmas ghosts who are going to pay him a visit and ideally help him turn his life around before it's too late. Now, are there any particular Marleys you wanted to comment on here? Yeah, well... <laughs> I, I actually think the Marleys tend to be a very fun and well-cast character in general, or well-depicted in the case of animation. I think it's worth noting in this version, we get Obi-Wan Marlobi himself to play Marley, Alec Guinness. Um, I thought he did a really nice job. He's very fun. He's got like a almost snake-like slithery way that he moves, and um, you could tell he was kind of relishing it, but... 
I think all the the Marleys are good. It's it's a good character, a fun character. Yeah, Alec Guinness really gets into it. He enters the room doing almost like this Fortnite dance. He's like an eel or something. Yeah. And he just seems to relish everything that he does in this film. Um, shout out to Goofy uh, as Marley in Mickey's Christmas Carol, which doesn't have enough songs for consideration here, but I like Bill Farmer's voice delivery. Oh, Goofy plays Marley. That's good. Scrooge, of course, says bah humbug to this, goes to bed. But as foretold, the ghosts start showing up. At least in most adaptations, the first one we get is the Ghost of Christmas Past, who, broad strokes, these versions always show the ghosts a little bit differently. Past usually has something to do with fire. It's like connected to a candle flame somehow, or embodies a candle. That's interesting. I hadn't noticed that pattern. The depiction is almost always a woman, often a young woman, or like a something baby-faced or or infantile about the woman. But that's not in every single case. Right. And so the past ghost is here. She says she's going to show Scrooge shadows of the things that have been. Basically little vignettes from his past life that have shaped who he is and where he's at in the present. And so we get a couple quick scenes at different points in Scrooge's life. Usually we start out with a scene of him as a child. Most versions, it's a schoolhouse where he is spending the holidays alone. It's a boarding school, so Hogwarts style. He's gonna stay there and not go home. But it's interesting to note how by far the biggest variation on this is the Fraser one, where instead of a boarding school, he's not a rich young man at a boarding school. I mean, I guess he doesn't have to be rich to be at a boarding school, but that's what I would think of. He's instead this this poor young boy who's kind of ruined by his father's debts. Kind of is interesting. It makes more of an origin story for his miserliness. Right. The 2004 adaptation adds some additional backstory where we see Scrooge's dad getting sent to debtor's prison and the family kind of being doomed. Scrooge's moral code is defined by you got to earn your fortune and keep it. That's what the father yells as he's being led away. That was an interesting addition because it does do a good job of explaining the things that happen later. Whereas in other adaptations, what the past sequence kind of serves to do is to justify Scrooge being nasty. Basically, bad things have happened to him, so we kind of empathize with this character that previously had just been shown to be a villain. One note specific to Scrooge 1970, well, in a lot of adaptations, we see Scrooge's sister in this scene, and she's kind of the one light in his life. But here in this version, she also goes to the boarding school, but she gets to go home and Ebenezer does not, which is very odd. Usually my understanding of it was that, you know, he's off at school to be trained to be a businessman, to take his place in society. And she's back home either doing less schooling or maybe not doing schooling at all because it's the 1840s and she's a woman. 
I don't really know. I just thought that was worth pointing out. Usually she comes to try to like bring him home eventually after their father has a change of heart, which to me says the father is already kind of a rich asshole that Scrooge is taking after. Yeah, it, it kind of works because it already is foreshadowing his two paths. One where he is kind of a normal loving person and one where he is a Scrooge. Right. And he ends up, of course, on the miserly path. We jump forward a ways and we see Scrooge at his first job or an early job where he is an apprentice to Fezziwig, who's this jovial, portly gentleman. And he's a kindly boss. It kind of turns on its head the model that we saw of Scrooge lording it over Cratchit in the beginning. Because Fezziwig is genial and gregarious. And he loves Christmas, it turns out. Because they're having a big Fezziwig company Christmas party. And this is usually a scene in musical adaptations where we get some kind of big period dancing number. It's a ball. Right, and this scene serves a lot of purposes. One is to kind of show that there is a version of Scrooge where he's still like a wealthy guy, runs a business, but has a big heart. Like this, this shows that that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. It's not a requirement that he be nasty just because he's wealthy. It also serves multiple plot points, which I think you're about to get to. In the four versions, I often found that this was one of the most enjoyable scenes of each version. Oh yeah, this is key. The past chapter in general is just universally the best in whatever adaptation you see because, well, a lot of reasons, but I think there's just drama in being young and romances. I mean, the last several movies we've looked at have been romances in one way or another. That's true. Because at Fezziwig's party, Scrooge connects with a beautiful young woman, usually named Belle or Isabel, inexplicably named Emily in the 2004 version. My theory on that is that Beauty and the Beast has locked down on the name Belle now. And if you name a love interest character Belle, people are just going to be like, oh, like Beauty and the Beast. That's fair. The two of them strike up a relationship and they eventually get engaged. In some versions, Scrooge 1970 included, Belle is Fezziwig's daughter. Do you know if that's in the book? I'm not sure. I don't think it is. In the Muppet version, I think Fezziwig says she's a friend of the Fezziwig family or something. But I think with that aspect, it kind of complicates it a little bit because... Like, oh, is he just getting close to his boss's daughter to get in good in the business? I don't know. That's interesting, yeah. But usually it's presented as genuine, that he's got a good thing going here. And they really seem to be in love at the start. But then we jump forward a few more Christmases, and we see Belle breaking off their engagement, citing Scrooge's growing obsession with money as her motive for calling things off. We see a bitter young Scrooge kind of letting her go, not chasing after her, just being angry and not really denying her charges that he's obsessed with money. In some versions, he's like, yeah, I've become a lot smarter now. 
but old Scrooge seeing this starts to melt a little bit because he's clearly heartbroken all over again, witnessing this scene. Always a signature moment of every adaptation. The the coldness of the the past young Scrooge, as opposed to the, this is like when the shell really cl- cracks on Ebenezer's coldness, at least present day old Ebenezer, when we start to see him really get emotional about the things that he's missed out on and the things that he's lost by being the way that he is. Exactly. I've always kind of wanted to know more about the intervening time here. Like, uh, I think we need a Scrooge and Bell midquel or something. Uh, Netflix original series, maybe. But these ghosts can only show him Christmases, apparently. So the, the time in between may as well not exist. But I just want to know more about what happened here. I think the Fraser version does a good bit to explain his obsession with always getting and keeping money. It seems in other adaptations to just be kind of stark that she's into him at the party and then like a year later they're calling it quits that he's changed that much in that time and what happened if i'm not mistaken in the muppets it goes a little bit of the way towards what the fraser version does which is it suggests that it's kind of a twisted version of how he's trying to express his love that's kind of consumed himself like he wants to provide her a good house but it's never enough and it becomes less about the love and more about the money but i agree with you this would be a very interesting midquel i would love to see a one year in the life of scrooge and bell then they meet they fall in love it, it climaxes with this bit here that's a good call though it it sounds like he keeps moving the goalposts of when they can get married and she's not into that well, not to dwell too much, we do have other material to cover, but this is just a, a crux moment that's always good, always powerful in any adaptation. I think there's an interesting juxtaposition between the kids scene, where the things that are happening to Scrooge are not his fault, to this scene where it falls apart with Belle, where I think it very clearly is his fault. It makes it a little more complex, the purpose that this past sequence serves. I, I guess it humanizes Scrooge overall, but it's a little hard to empathize with young Scrooge here, at least. Easier to empathize with old Scrooge. Agreed. Because it's like, geez, man, you had a good thing here going. Why'd you let it fall apart? Why'd you, you know, not just be better, I guess. I thought Scrooge 1970 especially did a good job here with the musical number that they had for the scene of things coming together and then falling apart with Belle. We'll revisit things in a little while once we talk about the comparative merits of the songs in all the adaptations. But here in 1970, they did like this Russian nesting doll thing where the bell scenes are bookended with Scrooge singing a song called You, which is super sad. But then it flashes back to when they are courting and getting engaged. And Belle sings a song called Happiness, 
where they're riding around in a carriage and Scrooge is wearing this flamboyant top hat, like the biggest top hat I've seen. <laughs> I, I don't know. This version, just the lyrics here and Scrooge standing there singing beside his younger self is very sad. I'm with you. I think I think that was a strong point in the 1970 rendition. Very evocative. And Mr. Magoo's got a pretty sad one, too. Yeah, would you like to talk about that briefly? Well, just in general with Mr. Magoo. So I had no context for Mr. Magoo. I know he's got a funny name. I know he's a cartoon. I've never seen any of it. I don't know like the origin story of it. Literally, all I can tell you about Mr. Magoo is what I learned watching this. I was surprised how straight and kind of dark it was um it wasn't super duper cartoony except for a couple times and most of that was like the framing device which was the that he's actually putting on a play interestingly makes this musical be diegetic as opposed to non-diegetic the rest of them are to go back to something we talked a lot about last week yeah he's he's got this really sad number uh, Alone in the World, I think it's called. You, I don't know if I would have been able to pull that title, but I see it up here in our notes. And yeah, I mean, it's stark for a cartoon from the 50s or 60s. And in that one, Alone in the World, he's singing beside his child self, Alone in the Schoolhouse. So yeah, that one's very poignant and memorable to me as well. Gotcha. I'm getting my wires crossed. That's not the the bell song. That's the uh, the childhood song. But yeah, that that was a strong moment there. Oh right, the bell song, which similar, another sad one. Uh, in Magoo is called Winter Was Warm. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you talked about some version specific notes for Mr. Magoo. I'll throw in here that you're right. It is very straight and true to the story, and. Interestingly, the Mr. Magoo cartoon pretty much revolves 100% around him not being able to see well. He's always misreading signs and bumping into things and talking to mannequins instead of people. And that's pretty much the whole show. And that's almost entirely absent from Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. There's like three standard Magoo gags and they're mostly in the opening when he's making his way to the stage. So you could really just call this Jim Backus's Christmas Carol. It's like the mil- the millionaire from Gilligan's Island's Christmas Carol. Oh, is that the guy who voices it? Yeah, he seems to more be playing Thurston Howell to me than standard Mr. Magoo. I can see that, yeah. And without dwelling too much on it, I'll talk more about it when we do our final reviews the biggest structural change that any of these four movies do is that the Mr. Magoo version has the ghost of Christmas present come before the ghost of Christmas past. And we haven't quite gotten to the present section. We're about to get there, but interesting that the past section comes second and not first. Yeah. That always throws me. I always feel like I missed something because that's pretty unique to this version. But yes, Christmas past returns Scrooge to his room and leaves. Sometimes Scrooge gets pissed and snuffs out the candle that past has and like kills the ghost. You don't always get that. In Frasier, she does turn into like a puff of smoke. Um, But I think other than that, 
the parting is more genial in these versions. And of course, up next, at least in most versions, is Christmas Present, who usually comes in the form of a chuckling giant who is very jovial. And he's got a big furry robe and a big beard and more than a passing resemblance to the typical representations of Father Christmas slash Santa Claus. And present is here to show Scrooge FOMO, basically fear of missing out. These are the celebrations that he doesn't get to be a part of by staying in and being a miser every year and cloistered away in his cheap apartment. So across the board, we see a scene where Bob Cratchit is celebrating Christmas with his big family. He's got a lot of kids and meager rations to go around. And for the first time, we see Scrooge learning about Tiny Tim, who is Bob's youngest child and has some debilitating Dickensian Victorian England disease. Kind of unspecified. Uh, I think what he really has is poverty. <laughs> I, think, I think he's yeah. got a bad case of being poor. I think that's astute. It's generic. My, my body ain't working. I gotta wear a cast and look sickly disease. Right. I think <laughs> maybe we'll come back to it with our capitalism talk, but I think it needs to be said that if you have a ton of kids, that's going to stretch your finances, no matter how wealthy you are. If you got five kids, money is likely going to be tight, which uh, may, maybe that's victim blaming. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You got you. You come from a big family, Dan. You may be able to speak more to that than I can. Yeah. Well, obviously, I come from a upper middle class background, not a poor background. And so for us, it was like, we can only go to the restaurant once a year, as opposed to we need to decide whether we have shoes or food type of stretching of the budget. But you're definitely right. And it, it also is true. This is an interesting thing I learned. I read a book that um, one common reason that in kind of poor areas, poor countries, it's more common one is obviously that it's harder to get birth control and get like the medical attention you need to not have kids anymore. Um, but also you need more kids to help help around the house and more kids to go out and work and earn money for the family. And that just seems to be something that kind of culturally aligns with being poor, even though ironically, like you said, you'd think the less money you have, the less, the more incentive there is to not have any more kids because it's kind of hard to feed them all. Right. Although, yeah, this could be a trapping of a lost age too. Just this could, this could be standard in the olden times, which I don't really have anywhere else to stick this, but money is very weird in Victorian England. It's like impossible to keep track of the different denominations. What is a, bob and a tuppence and a shilling and a pound and a crown and a sovereign it's always impossible yeah like, i had absolutely no idea clearly a half a crown is a lot of money but i don't know how it compares to a sovereign or whatever else yeah and he'll be like you owe me six pounds like is that is that like twenty dollars is that like 
five hundred dollars? Is that like a hundred thousand dollars? I don't know. You, you could it could be any of those things. In Americans' minds, this is just Harry Potter money. It's <laughs> it's silly British wizard money. I think in modern times they've simplified it some, but uh, as far as I know, it's still confusing. Here at this point, seeing Tiny Tim, Scrooge gets his Malthusian views thrown back in his face. Now, Malthus was a philosopher and economist of a few centuries back. And his view was that overpopulation was occurring. He took kind of a very cold natural selection view that at certain point forces are going to cause the economically ill-equipped to die off. And at the start of most adaptations, Scrooge gives a really cold-hearted interjection says that if they be like to die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Yeah, he, he goes from like curmudgeonly penny pincher to like almost sociopathic. Let the poor people go where it live in the prisons and the workhouses. Let the sick people just die and be done with it already. It, it definitely is very striking how he, he goes for that. I think it's in most of the if not all of the adaptations we watched for today. And present repeats this line back to him. And we see now that Scrooge is changing. He recoils at that a little bit, being fed his own medicine. And of course, we usually see the party that Scrooge's nephew is throwing. And in most adaptations, the guests are playing some kind of game and telling jokes at Scrooge's expense. Although I found it interesting that there's wild variations on the cousin's attitude towards Scrooge. Sometimes he's like sticking up for him and sometimes he's the one driving the mockery of Ebenezer. Although I think it needs to be said that this guy is sticking to his guns in trying to invite Scrooge to the party every year. Like this guy is not ghosting Scrooge. He is putting his work out there. Scrooge is ghosting him. That's true. Yeah. And I think typically the, this is his sister's son. So this is like his last living connection to family and love at this point because he's lost absolutely everything else. Right. And in some adaptations, they make it explicit that Scrooge's sister Fan died in childbirth. So that kind of gives a reason for him to resent his nephew. That's true. Yeah, that... He took the sister away from him. I didn't really think that much about that, but you're right. It does add another wrinkle on the relationship there. This is usually all you get in present. Some adaptations do more with the ghost aging while he's there with Scrooge to emphasize his fleeting nature. And obviously the present is only here for an instant. Then the next instant, that's a different present. So Ghost of Christmas Present, he's alive for like one day. In some versions, he'll start to go gray. Sometimes he'll go all the way to like becoming a full skeleton. The ghost of Christmas present also is kind of the most of a character of the three ghosts. He often, I think in, if not all, at least three of the four, has a bit where he's like, he sings a whole number himself about, don't you know what Christmas spirit is, you dumbass? Yeah, the ghosts don't always get songs. 
present has the strongest representation in that regard. Pretty much across the board, he gets to host Scrooge around and do some singing. Whereas I think there's only one version where past had a song and future almost never has a song because future almost never talks. But we'll get to future uh, now, I guess. I would say Muppet is the only version where we see the ghost aging here, ghost of present aging. And they also had him like lacking a short-term memory. He keeps repeating himself in the Muppet version because it's like he's so connected to the present that he doesn't even remember what he said a second ago. Right. That that was an interesting twist. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Now, this is when the Ghost of Christmas Future arrives, Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. He's just straight up the Grim Reaper. That's that's who he is. With the exception of Fraser, where he's like a ghostly, well, she is like a ghostly woman. Yeah, I think the Fraser version owes a lot to Sweeney Todd ah. because there's this hag beggar woman character who's kind of lurking at the periphery of the story and then she shows up at the end to play a big role and here they've got her in the future role and at first she's wearing the black cloak like you normally see and then she kind of puts on this like mummy costume right she's got these bandages hanging off of her yeah all three of the ghosts in fraser are people that he saw on the streets, people that Scrooge saw and scorned in some way. It's almost like a Wizard of Oz type scenario where in these visions, they're being guided by variations on people that he encountered in his everyday life. Definitely. And I didn't say it at the appropriate time, but I think it needs to be said that Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock is here as ghost of christmas past i think the actress is named jane krasinski just because we brought this sort of thing to the table when we were talking about leah thompson a few episodes back she is looking real good here like <laughs> oh my gosh talking about tex avery double takes she has this number where she climbs up on Sco scrooge's bed and like pole dances around the posters of his canopy bed. Yeah, that was a little intense, I thought. I'm with you. She's she's really beautiful in this. And it's kind of funny when she's in her almost like she's repairing something, but she's wearing these big baggy overalls and I don't know. It was kind of funny seeing like what is clearly a beautiful woman but like doing this manual labor out there. For me the uh the wowie zowie beauty of these four adaptations is Jennifer Love Hewitt in the Frasier version. She's Emily. She's the only time where I saw Emily slash Belle appear and be like, okay, yeah, I can see why that's the one that stole Scrooge's heart. <laughs> For me, it's Daisy Duck. No. <laughs> no, I don't know. That's just the first one that I saw. That's the um, other podcast you host, Brian, not this one. <laughs> no, I don't know. I would have to think about specifically uh, Bell versions a little more. But moving on, we're in the future now. This is where things get bleak, sometimes so bleak that we don't even get a song. Muppets, no future song. I really like this bit where Charles Dickens, the narrator, played by Gonzo, said, like, 
I forget exactly what the wording is, but he's like, uh, this is kind of scary and dark. We're going to disappear for a bit and takes Rizzo, his comic counterpart. But it actually adds a lot of a lot of gravitas, how quiet it is. There's, it's very spooky. I, I really liked that touch in Muppet. Yeah. Scrooge is getting led around by a skeleton at this point. It's meant to be scary and creepy. And we first see a scene of people in a town square, these businessmen making light that somebody has just died. And throughout these scenes, they're kind of talking about this nasty dude who has died. And Scrooge keeps being like, well, spirit, who died? Who's dead? Who are they talking about? And that always grates on me a little bit. And maybe it's because we've seen the story a million times. <laughs> but this is just not mysterious at all. It's like, why do you think you're here, dude? It's interesting. To go back to Muppets, I actually think that one handles it the best. He has a line about, oh, I know what it is. Must I see it? Or something like that. Like, he he knows what it is in his heart. But it's not until we actually see the gravestone that it's like the punch in the face. I don't know. But you're right. It's kind of... You feel like he would have caught on, like, thematically. Hey, what are these ghosts trying to show me? Oh, maybe the fact that they're rejoicing someone being dead would make you think that it's about me, because this whole journey has been about me. But I, I like the treatment they do here in Scrooge 1970, because we see people rejoicing that, I guess, now they don't have to pay their debts back. I don't think banks necessarily work that way. Maybe they did in the olden times. But they owed this mystery man money. Of course, we know that it's Scrooge. And now they're freed of that yoke. And so in Scrooge 1970, we get this big Oliver style dance number called Thank You Very Much, where Scrooge is hearing them thank this guy for something. And he's kind of pieced together because I guess they're outside his house that they are thanking Scrooge. And... He has his heart warmed while, ironically, they are carting out his coffin in the background behind him. And then all the townspeople go off dancing down the street behind the coffin, including this one featured singer who actually climbs up on the coffin and starts dancing around. Literally dancing on, not his grave, I guess. But yeah, that's, uh, and, and the great thing here is that Scrooge doesn't actually realize that they're celebrating his death. They think they're just celebrating him. So it, it's got like a dramatic irony to it. Often in the adaptations, we also see some unsavory characters who have stolen Scrooge's possessions after he died, like right after he died. Like his servant opened the door and these scavengers came in and took all his stuff to sell on the black market. I really love these melodramatic, not quite grave robbers. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're a fun premise in in Frasier. It's like weirdly shot. It's like his bed outside. And I guess it's like his grave too. I don't know. That one was fun. It's it's always fun to have these seedy characters singing. And the Magoo one with Weird Despicable. It's like just a fun, cheesy villain song. It's pretty good. I'm going to link my own personal cover of We're Despicable in our multimedia section. So keep an eye out for that. I did not know you'd covered it. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I, I covered it with Olivia Walsh. Uh. 
We also see that in this darkest timeline, to parallel with the community there, Tiny Tim has died of his mysterious illness, and now the Cratchit household is joyless. Often accompanied with the striking image of either the whole family or just Bob Cratchit mourning at the grave. Then finally, Ghost of Christmas Future escorts Scrooge to Scrooge's own gravesite. And this is the always the biggest moment of Scrooge screaming, no, give me another chance. And like he's really horrified when he sees his gravestone. And I know that would be existentially weird. And there is a striking finality to it. But Scrooge is an old man. In the future, <laughs> he's going to die no matter how nice he gets. So just seeing that, that in the future, you will be buried in the ground should not be that big of a revelation. It's something that every single person faces and more so as they age. But I think you touched on why it actually works. It's like, you can't take it with you. It's the nail in the metaphorical coffin, if you will, of Scrooge's change of heart because it's the moment it hits him. Maybe not just that he's surprised that he's dead and that that's like a wild thing to actually see yourself, as you said, ex- existentially jarring and strange. But it's like it sinks in that he had everything that is the life he's been living now. He has nothing as soon as that happens. And to me, it's more about the there's nothing there. There's nothing left than it is just seeing his name on the, the tombstone and knowing that he corporeally deceased. That's valid. Now, sometimes in different adaptations, we see Scrooge falling into the grave and it gets all fiery and you get the implication that, oh, he's going to hell. I mean, we get this in Mickey's Christmas Carol. We get this in the 2009 Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey, where he like falls down into the grave and there's fire all around him. But in Scrooge 1970, we take things to the next level because we actually get this whole big extended scene where Scrooge spends some considerable time in hell. This is the part where this one blew my mind a little bit because (laughs) it's this big set with these red cavern walls and Marley reappears. Alec Guinness comes shuffling out again. He's going to be the guide through hell, almost like a Dante's Inferno thing. And he leads Scrooge to his quarters He says that because Scrooge was so nasty on earth, he's actually impressed the devil and the devil is going to give him a job. And so Scrooge is going to spend eternity being to Lucifer what Bob Cratchit was to Scrooge. (laughs) And so, of course, they cart out the enormous chain that like a dozen burly men have to carry to chain Scrooge to a desk in the counting house which separate from the rest of hell, which is typically very hot, here in Scrooge's office, recreated in his personal hell, is freezing cold. And this is where Scrooge is going to have to spend forever being somebody else's Bob Cratchit. So it's like a little mini Twilight Zone episode with Marley 
gloating for some reason. He just seems to be relishing this chance to punish Scrooge. I love Guinness doing that, yeah. Which is kind of twisted because I thought Marley was the one who wanted to change things for Scrooge. Maybe now it's, wow, you didn't take my advice, so screw you. This is where you'll end up. Yeah, I take it you were a fan of the sequence. Yeah, I liked it a lot. The production design is high, and it was just something new. It's something you don't normally see. I've always kind of liked the falling into the fire moment, and I just was not expecting this. Yeah, that's interesting. I I enjoyed watching it, but to me, it almost rings out of sync with the rest of what A Christmas Carol is. I have a couple of thoughts on the religious elements of A Christmas Carol that I'm, I'm going to save for when we're talking about uh, strengths and weaknesses of this this film but this like him in hell and suffering as a personal suffering is very different from him just feeling sad and alone and it's all gone because he didn't love anyone in this world so to me it was like I kind of jarring thematically because it, it I guess it does escalate his own feeling bad about where he's going but in a very different way from like the moral of the rest of the the things that he's learned. Yeah. It could definitely be read as overkill. Uh, but it is foreshadowed. I mean, when Marley shows up often, there's a scene where Marley shows him a bunch of different Marley ghosts. He's like, this is going to be you dude. So s- straighten up and fly. Right. That's true. Scrooge returns to his bedroom, a changed man. He wakes up, you know, clutching the bed curtains. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. And here is his time to redeem himself. So, of course, he runs out into the street. He buys an extravagant dinner and Christmas presents for the Cratchits. And he gives money to the alms collectors that he rebuffed earlier. And in some versions, he actually tears up all his debt paperwork, which this is kind of interesting (laughs) because... He usually gives Cratchit a raise and he says, oh, you'll be my partner in the business and we'll chart a financial course together. But like if you're destroying all your records, that's going to just ruin your business and you're not even going to have any money to pay Cratchit with. It did make me wonder just how rich Scrooge is. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is he like the top of the middle class or is he like the top of the upper class you know is he what we would consider a billionaire today or like a multi-millionaire or is he kind of like uh just uh, an upper middle class small business owner accountant equivalent who just happens to be a penny pincher i i feel like there's different ways to read that right you gotta wonder does this scrooge have a money pit like disney's uncle scrooge <laughs> exactly does he yeah. swim around in piles of gold we're finally almost to the end of our summary But this is a point that makes me think about this story's commentary on capitalism, because just because Scrooge changes doesn't mean the whole system of the world is going to change. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's noteworthy that many of the ways that he expresses his love are by relinquishing his money, his wealth, and sharing it with other people. Oh, you you don't owe me that debt anymore. It's, It's yours. You, you can have this money. Oh, I'm going to buy every toy in the store. That That's an interesting one, actually, from the 1971. He goes way over the top. It's kind of an amusing scene. He's 
He buys every single toy in the store. He actually looks like he's a kid in the store himself. He's so excited to buy all these things. But the way that he often expresses this via material possessions and wealth exchanges or debt resolution. So A Christmas Carol was written in 1843. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. (laughs) I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence. Uh, I think the there were some forces at work that people were recognizing uh, with the conquest of capitalism and growing industrialization. I'm with you. Things turn around for Scrooge. He becomes a good person. Everybody is coming around, warming up to him because he's being a nice guy now. And it ends with Tiny Tim saying, God bless us, everyone. Except I think in... Scrooge 70, We the only time Tiny Tim says it is in Christmas present, if I'm not mistaken. It's certainly not at the very end, which to me is like sacrilege. You know, that's one of the things you got to have. It's got to end with God bless us, everyone. Right. And actually, I think it was in the Frasier version. I could be confused because I watched three versions yesterday, too. But I think in that one, Tiny Tim said God bless us. And then Scrooge said God bless us, everyone. Yes, you're right about that, too. Yeah. Changes it up a little bit. And that was our master recap, (laughs) our rather bloated summary of what's actually a pretty short story. But I think what it shows is that each individual story beat is important to the things that happen. Yeah, it's a tight, well-written story. Everything matters. There's just the right number of plot threads for a feature-length film. It's good. Well, now that we're through our story... I wanted to queue up a game of sorts that was really the inspiration for why I jammed all four of these movies together to begin with. And how are we going to go about this, Dan? Sure. So thank you for letting me run this segment. I am a big fan of goofy games like this where I get to be competitive and use game theory and strategy. So we're going to do a fantasy draft of the Christmas Carol songs. So songs in these four movies. So we're limited to these four movies. One thing that we didn't mention, there have been a couple other musical adaptations on film and TV of A Christmas Carol. In fact, one came out in 2015. I do think that these are the only four that have their own dedicated Wikipedia article. So I think we maybe have hit the four most significant musical Christmas Carols. But there are others, and we are limited to these four. So we're going to each draft six songs, and those six songs must fit into the following slots. We have one opening or intro song, so from the the pre-transition to the past. And it can be anything. It can be like the Meet Scrooge. It can be Meet the World. It can be Meet Marley, etc. We're going to have one that's in the Christmas past, one that's in the Christmas present, one that's in the Christmas future, and one that is after the return. So you've labeled this the changed Scrooge sequence. Then we get one song that's a wild card. So you can choose one additional song. So we're kind of building from the disassembled parts of other musicals, our own Christmas Carol musical, one song from each section, and then we get one bonus in addition. A couple other rules and the fantasy draft style rules 
you don't have to pick in order, so it's not like you need to pick your intro song first. You can pick any of them first, but once a song has been picked, the other cannot pick that song. So each song can only be picked once. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that sounds like a good approach. Then we can prioritize. So we're going to each have six picks. I have you going first. So you're going to get the first overall song selection here. And I will, I'll be Ledgerman over here and, and note which ones we've picked. Okay. You say I go first, pick, pick my song first? Correct. Okay. Well, just to snag it early, I'm going to grab you from Scrooge 1970. This is the bell song, the especially sad one when he's standing there as an old man beside his young self saying, how could there be such a fool as I? That's, yeah, pick number one for me. Definitely, it's a great emotional moment. I was worried you were going to take the one that I really wanted, and I kept my cards a little close to the vest as we were talking about it. I think Scrooge 1970 goes into masterpiece territory one time, and that is the Thank You Very Much song. I really love the dark hilarious irony of this Scrooge being just so joyful at these people singing his his praises. Oh, it's they're so happy about me and my work without realizing they're celebrating his death. That's just black comedy done right for me. I really love that moment. I love that song. I think it's also the most hummable, catchy song. Um, I, I'm also with you. The You song works really well. It's a very poignant moment. But to me, the... Thank you very much from the future from Scrooge 1970 is my pick for uh, my future slot. Across all the adaptations, I think that's the strongest future song. Yeah, you don't get much in the way of future songs, but yeah. Right. And we didn't say it, but in Scrooge 1970, at the end, when Scrooge is going through the streets, a changed man, we get quick reprises of a bunch of the songs. And they mean something new now, because when it started out, there were the street children singing Father Christmas, ironically, about Scrooge. Yeah, mocking his his lack of generosity. And then later, he's literally wearing a Santa Claus costume. And he's giving gifts away. Very, very little. Yeah, no, I really, I thought that was clever how these songs came back. And they do thank you very much again. Right, the same the same guy is literally thanking him because this is when he's tearing up his debt book. Yeah. All right, so round two for me, right? Yep, so you've picked your past song. All right. Well, I like a lot of the Marley songs. I think I'm going to have to pick Link by Link from the Frasier version. This is where Jason Alexander shines and an extended number dancing around with skeletons and a headless guy and this is just an especially ghoulish musical number yeah this is great one of my favorite maybe my favorite musical number from fraser the the 2004 adaptation i i'm with you and it's like he he's really good jason alexander he's like hamming it up a little he looks like a little bit like Danny DeVito as the Penguin in Batman Returns. 
and uh, he's got this. It's just this big showstopper. I, I really liked it. I think it's the best Marley song. That was my whole inspiration for even tacking this movie on for consideration was just seeing this scene. All right, so I've picked a future song. I'm gonna go with the Muppets present Christmas present song. It feels like Christmas. To me, this is an iconic uh, number. Just captures the spirit of Christmas. It's a very memorable tune. I don't know if it's ever been like covered or become a Christmas standard in its own right, but to me, this is right up there just in terms of tunes and songs I enjoy that really capture a feeling. And for me, it's like just Christmas, Christmas geniality, love towards one another. It feels like Christmas for me. That's my ghost of or I guess Christmas present song. You sniped it. I agree. This is the strongest present song of our four films that we considered. And it just does a really good job of capturing the spirit. Like you said, there's a line. It is the summer of the soul in December. That's what Christmas is. I think this song of all the Muppet songs from this movie stands the best on its own. They recently used it in a Christmas show at Disneyland. Oh, that's cool. I might link that in the media section too. But good pick. I would have gotten that one if you hadn't. But I will make my present selection now. I pick I Like Life from Scrooge 1970. I think my favorite part of this one is when he says, I like life here and now. Life and I make a mutual vow. Till I die, life and I will both try to be better somehow. So it's kind of the message of, you know, seize the day. And this song is actually how I first found out about this movie. So that's what brought this one to the table for me. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So I've picked a Christmas present and Christmas future song. I'm going to go with an intro song here at the risk of my roster just becoming a Muppet Christmas Carol. I like all three of the opening numbers in Muppets. So you have Scrooge, where everybody's singing about how nasty he is. You have the Marley and Marley, where we meet the brothers Marley, and that one's always had a rhythm that's got stuck in my head. But my favorite, and this is probably right up there with It Feels Like Christmas in terms of songs that stand on their own and that kind of lingered in my head, is One More Sleep Till Christmas. I just think it's a great opening number we we even use that phrase sometimes on christmas eve uh i have a family chat with uh, my wife's family and on christmas eve morning one of her brothers texted just one more sleep till christmas so i'm gonna go with that one i really love that tune and i love also you get to see the whole neighborhood having fun and getting ready for their big holiday it's it's just a, a warm number we did consider breaking this area this this part of the roster up into a couple sections because the intros tend to have a lot of songs in them uh there was discussion of making marley song its own category i think i think what we've come up with works well i am going to grab my changed scrooge song now i choose thankful heart from muppets we get a charming number from michael kane talking about 
how he's going to live each day embracing the world now. And this is just a catchy one. Very charming. Good pick. I also really love The Love We Found, which is the closing number there. Another one that kind of feels like its own instant classic to me. I'm not going to pick that one, though. So I have a Christmas past changed Scrooge song and then my wild card left. So I'm going to go with Christmas past. I do really like the unique place of the the bell songs. Um, And I think they're generally pretty good. But I also like just seeing a party. And maybe this is becoming a theme, just like the feeling of warmth, the Christmas feeling. But I really enjoyed Fezziwig's annual Christmas ball from the Frasier version. Um, that just made that was a party. I wanted to hop in the screen. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be sharing a dance with Jennifer Love Hewitt. Nice, solid choice. I'm going to grab my future song now. Future songs are admittedly slimmer pickings, but I choose "We're Despicable" from Mr. Magoo. I like the way this is animated. There are bits where we just see all their snaggle-toothed mouths going. La, 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 la. So it's kind of the same thing as Thank You Very Much, where we get a moment of dark humor. I almost took that one as my wild card. I might not end up with any Magoo songs here. If I was going to have a Magoo song here, that was the one I wanted. I was thinking about taking that as my wild card because I already have a Christmas future song. But I'm with you. That that was a fun, fun number. It was maybe the cartooniest moments other than the framing story of the of Magoo. Uh, quick honorable mention to Dancing on Your Grave, the <laughs> musical number from the Frasier version, just because of how many people are there. There's this huge graveyard dance number with all these people trotting through Dancing on the Grave. It was the, it was the gauntliest moment. So I have my changed Scrooge number as well as my wild card. Uh, I'm going to pick my changed Scrooge number. I'm going to go with... Oh, this is tough. Actually, I take it back. I'm going to go with my wild card. And the reason I'm choosing it as a wild card is because I don't think it fits neatly in a category. This is yesterday, tomorrow, and today. So this is the big end of future change of heart number in the 2004 Frasier adaptation. Kelsey Grammer is fine he's pretty good scrooge he's a good actor in general you know it works i wasn't really sold on it until this moment and he really sells his his sadness his pathos his desire to be a better man i thought this was an awesome number i'm taking my wild card yesterday tomorrow and today so i think we kind of have to double dip into one of the categories for our wild card i considered drawing on a reprise or reprise reprises are a mixed bag for me in musicals in a sense sometimes i feel like they're kind of lazy because you're literally just reusing a song from earlier it makes them harder to talk about but when they're used well it's in a way like in scrooge 1970 where now they have different significance because something has changed for the characters so i I thought maybe i would get the uh, thank you very much reprise But I'm going to quickly look at our board here. Still some good ones out here. Shout out to See the Phantoms, the Scrooge 1970 Marley song, which is just has some really scary monsters in that one. I was afraid. 
Yeah. And man, we still have several good ones. Still have I Hate People on the board with the killer rap verses. <laughs> the recitative. Yeah. I think I'm going to grab Alone in the World, the song that Scrooge sings with his child self alone in the schoolhouse in Magoo. That's a good one. Yeah. I have one more pick. So I have my changed Scrooge. This is the category other than yesterday, tomorrow, and today, which I think kind of bridges the gap between future and changed Scrooge. This is the one that I had the hardest time having with. I've narrowed it down to two. I'll just shout out both of them. I, I really love The Love We Found from Muppet. It's just a, a, a great tune and a, a, a heartwarming closer. I'm going to go with Begin Again from Scrooge 1970. The reason I'm going to go with that is I think the tune itself isn't quite as memorable. In fact, I'm having trouble even humming it in my head. But the delivery of it, the sheer joy and enthusiasm of Scrooge in this moment is really sold the the hope of another chance to make things right bouncing around i distinctly remember him he's like pulling stuff off the shelves and i don't know that's a fun one um so i'm gonna for my changed scrooge i'm gonna go with begin again all right i'm glad we were able to do this this worked out pretty well i think we both got some solid soundtracks let me hit you up with our our final rosters so here's your your musical your intro number is link by link the George Costanza Marley number. Your Christmas past is you slash happiness from 1970 Scrooge. Your Christmas present song is I Like Life. Your Christmas future song is We're Despicable. Your changed Scrooge song is Thankful Heart. And your wild card is Alone in the World, which would occur during Christmas past as in from Mr. Magoo as so this is when he's in the boarding school, right? Right. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, my past section is stacked. Got to yeah. have a solid past when you're doing a Christmas Carol. So what have you got? My opening number is One More Sleep Till Christmas. My Christmas past song is Fezziwig's Annual Christmas Ball from 2004 Frasier. My Christmas present song is It Feels Like Christmas from Muppet. My Christmas future is Thank You Very Much. Uh, that one's from 1970 Scrooge. My changed... Scrooge is Begin Again from 1970. And my wild card is Yesterday, Tomorrow, and Today, the Kelsey Grammer ballad from the 2004 Frasier. I just want to emphasize, sorry, I've been calling it Frasier, we've been calling it. It does not have any link to Frasier other than starring Kelsey Grammer. Apologize, apologies if that's been confusing. Yeah, I believe the full title is A Christmas Carol, The Musical, but it's it's very generic. The defining characteristic is stars Kelsey Grammer. So it sounds like the changed Scrooge numbers resonated with you. From that one, yeah, I liked that one. Mm-hmm. Well, yesterday, tomorrow, and today is kind of, it's like bridges, like you yeah. said, future to the transformation. I, I do think that the past has the most emotional material to work with. I thought about taking another one of those. When Love is Gone, the Muppet one, is cut from some DVD releases and from the Disney Plus one. You have to go watch it on YouTube. At least the version that I had didn't have it. So that's another good one. I remember being a little bored by it as a kid, but when I've rewatched it as an adult, it sells the the heartbreak. I think maybe they looked at it and realized there were three minutes of the movie where no Muppet was on screen. (laughs) And they're like, oh, we got to do something about this. 
We need to do more fantasy drafts. This was fun. Yeah. We both got pretty solid lineups, I think. I think so, too, yeah. All right. Well, as it always does, time is slipping on into the future. So let's quickly talk about some things that we liked and maybe didn't like so much. Uh, let's let's limit it just for concision's sake to Scrooge 1970, our featured uh, entry today. Sure. And then maybe we could do a rapid fire section on the others. Yep. Yep. And we can maybe slap some ratings on them or something. Sounds good. So you want to hit us with a good thing first? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to like separate in general the strengths and weaknesses of A Christmas Carol versus uh, 19, Scrooge 1970 specifically. So mine will be a kind of a mix of those two things. From Scrooge 1970, one thing I think that that did better than any other is Albert Finney. It's kind of a mixed thing. Although I, I don't think his... I have some thoughts on his Scrooge affectations that would belong in some not so good things for me he is clearly a awesome actor i've never seen him in anything else but he just can sell emotions and he's the one where i most get the sense of the cold heart thawing out of any of the scrooges for me a really striking moment is the the you slash happiness ballad and then he kind of cuts back there might be i can't remember if that's the last thing before it cuts back to him waking up or if there's some other stuff, but I don't know about you. If you've ever had like dreams where it's like very emotional in your dream and you wake up and you're like still caught in that emotion. And I kind of felt that for, for Scrooge, like he would have this vision and he woke up and he was like still in the emotional midst of it, like revisiting that old love. And I I just thought he's clearly a great actor, if not a great Scrooge in every way. So I don't love Albert Finney in this role. But I do love that moment. The you scene, I think, is one of the biggest strengths. I, I suppose I've said it a couple times already. And yeah, this is always the saddest moment of the story. But like this one legitimately like breaks my heart every time. Uh, there's this line that he says, he's standing there, you know, facing the significance of what young Scrooge has done by letting her go and disappear out into the world. And he says, I who must travel on, what hope for me? Dream where my past has gone. Live with the memory. And for me, that's saddest lyric across all of them. And just the way he delivers it, I'm like choking up. It's, yeah. it's rough. This is a bleak thing that he's facing down. And it just makes me think, why do versions leave out a future song? Because it's like too dark or scary when they always hit you with a super sad song here. That's one thing I enjoyed about the 2004 where it had that the ballad from the future yesterday, tomorrow, and today. Well, I said it already. I really like Alec Guinness as Marley. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I know you didn't enjoy this bit as much. But the hell scene is an addition I'm going to now miss in any other adaptation that I watch. It's like, well, where's the part where yeah. a half dozen burly men come out with a ton of chains and uh, burden him down in hell? Yeah, no, I could, it's, it is instantly memorable for sure. And I, 
I think it's thematically confusing, or at least in the spiritual tone and theme of the story, but I agree with you. It's fun. He like burns his hand on the brimstone, and then you're right, the huge chain they pull out. It's a fun moment for sure. And, and when he wakes up there, he's in like this neon coffin. It's like this weird glowing, <laughs> I don't know, just very visually interesting. Yeah. I've already mentioned it, but for me, the strongest moment is thank you very much. They went all in on the twisted, dark irony of him thinking that they're happy for him when, in fact, they're happy he's dead. And I was riveted. I loved it. Yeah, I I feel like that's where they channeled Oliver the most in terms of choreography. It's this huge group song out in the city streets, but it's powerful. It's funny. It's dark. The music is really catchy. And you get into the spirit of the celebration, <laughs> as macabre as it is. Finney as Scrooge is just so ecstatic, which makes it all the more just stab in the gut that they're not actually singing his praises. The other things that I really liked, I've already talked about before. The lyrics in I Hate People are very clever. And I also liked some of the special effects. There's like a scene with a ghost hearse driving through the front of scrooge's house and i mean it's a simple effect but it's effective and i wasn't expecting it and uh finally for me just getting to see scrooge at work this is something that the fraser version also did well just showing more of what scrooge and marley's actually does right yeah i like that and how it introduced some stuff nuance and complexity to scrooge's role in the world do you have anything else you wanted to hit I think we hit most of the distinct highlights. I mean, it's competent throughout, but as far as like things that kind of stood out from Scrooge 1970, I think we nailed them. And yeah, just to emphasize, watching four of them in a row made me realize how much the Christmas past is the dramatic crux, the most important point. It's like, on a brief tangent here, there's a song by Radiohead called Creep. And I've listened to about 55 different covers of that song. There's one moment, it's the bridge after I think it's the second verse. And for me, you got to nail the bridge. The bridge is why you're even listening to the song in the first place. And for me, the reason you're watching Christmas Carol in the first place is because of the, the emotional stuff that happens in past. And then, of course, how it ultimately pays off in the, the finale. Totally agree. Is it time for some not quite so good things? Sure. Let's go for it. So the big one for me, and this may be one of our biggest clashes, I am not fond of Finney's Scrooge. Specifically, his old man affectations really annoy me. He does this goofy, high-pitched voice, and he like holds his lower jaw off to one side, so his mouth is like always at an angle, so it makes him talk strangely. Albert Finney in the movie is not actually as old as as Scrooge. Like, he's not an old man. I mean, he's not a young man either, really. He's, I don't know how old he was. I could look it up, but I won't. But he also plays the young adult Scrooge in the past. In fact, in Scrooge 1970, we may not get the school scene. It's like when we see young Scrooge, he's still Albert Finney with the old man makeup off and not doing the goofy thing with his mouth and not doing the weird high pitched voice. My sense is that Albert Finney, you know, they cast a guy who could be young Scrooge too, except in those scenes, 
young Scrooge does not sing. So what is the point? Typically, you get a different actor or maybe a couple different actors to be young Scrooge. And I just wondered why they needed a guy who could be both if old Scrooge is going to be doing this goofy stuff with his voice and his carriage. It gets even worse in the scene with Christmas present when they get drunk on the human kindness. And he just starts acting even loopier in that scene. And it just really grated on me. What's more, I think with a Scrooge that I enjoy more, this adaptation would be like my favorite of all of them, musical or otherwise. I There's things about this version that I really like. And he is like an albatross just dragging it all down for me. That's my take. So now uh, that, that's my sole bullet point <laughs> under not so good at the moment. So please feel free to drag me. Well, I want to say, and I kind of tried to focus on the positives. I'm actually, I don't disagree with you that much, to be honest. The way that the thing with his mouth and he talks weird, it's like, it's kind of even hard to imitate. It's kind of like how in The Godfather, uh, Marlon Brando put gauze in his mouth. And so you can't like, he talks in a very kind of blurry way, except that one is not as annoying. Here it's just annoying. Uh, My take is Finney is a good, maybe even great actor but an annoying and not very good Scrooge. He can act some of the stuff, but when he's actually Scrooge himself doing Scroogey things, it doesn't work as well for me. In fact, it's often annoying. You're 100% right. The drunk thing, it was just annoying. When he does his squeaky squeaks in his voice, I don't like that either. I, I'm, I was out on that. So I actually don't really disagree with you despite praising his ability to act so i guess yeah. i guess i just it's more of a mixed review for me rather than just a straight not so good thing yeah there, there really is passion and passion and feeling in his performance so yeah and I, I really think he did a good job of capturing the changing perspective of scrooge just by his demeanor that's what i mean when i say he's good at the acting piece i'll say my favorite scrooge out of these ones that we considered i really like michael kane in muppet i'm with you he's the best out of these i agree he doesn't act out the emotions quite as much as finney does but he gets like tears in his eyes and his face changes a little and he's right up there too in fact and he doesn't have the annoying ticks that finney does i'm i think he's the best of the, the scrooges of the ones we've seen i think the iconic historical one is um 1951 it's also called scrooge although it might have been like released as a christmas carol in the u.s but alistair sim have you seen that one i can't remember i've seen a lot i know of that one i'm not sure i watched it all the way through so i think that's the like the five star masterpiece according to cinephiles is that one that's like the canonical scrooge but Michael Caine is right there for me. I'm very fond of Scrooge McDuck. It's Mickey's Christmas Carol is short, but I like his delivery. I like the Scottish accent for Scrooge. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. To be honest, I, I haven't all seen that many. And now I've seen definitely more musical ones than non-musical ones. It's almost going to be weird for me to watch one that doesn't have Scrooge singing about how much he misses Belle, you know? Well, next year I can queue up four non-musical <laughs> ones and... We can just keep doing it year after year. That could be fun, yeah. We could try to get through the whole canon of adaptations by year four or so. So I have one other 
not so good thing. Except that's not really a not so good thing. It's an observation. So I was watching this and this is the first one, the Scrooge one. And something occurred to me that has never occurred to me before. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer is very clearly a Hebrew name. Jacob Marley. Jacob is a Old Testament name. They are penny pinchers, work in a bank. Charles Dickens has been known to not be very good about uh, how he depicts Jewish people in his writing. Got me wondering, is this at all like an anti-Semitic caricature? And I thought a lot about it as I was watching all four, and I think very much it is not one. I think perhaps a few specific elements do draw from Jewish caricature that would be offensive these days, but it's definitely not a anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic story at all. It's not really a Christian story. In fact, it's very much not a Christian story. It's about Christmas, but it doesn't talk about Jesus at all. There's some references to God, and there's lots of imagery of the graveyard, and I think because I was thinking so much about this is why I found the hell scene so jarring, because this is a very humanistic, almost communist, as we've been talking a little bit about. You need the purpose of the goals of life are to love and enjoy the people around you and to give your time and your attention to people, not money, not things. And that is not at all a religious point. So it was a potentially not so good thing that transformed into just kind of an observation, a thematic observation. And I really like the spirit of that. I like that it's about people and the present and goodwill towards man and I don't know. It makes me want to be able to escape my own chained attachments to capitalism. But I have a mortgage to pay and I have to feed my kids. And I don't know. I just wish I could spend my time just enjoying with other people, which, you know, I still get to do a lot of that. But I don't know. It kind of hit me different this time. Yep. I think this has things to say to people of all ages. I agree. What, what do they say in community? Helping others is good. Helping only yourself is bad. Yeah, that's like... There's something like that at the end. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And and this kind of reiterates that. Yeah. So, Brian, the, the three others, just in the order that I watched them, they were Magoo, Frasier, and Muppet. Why don't we do some... I can give you my high-level notes here and maybe one or two highlights and then maybe you can, I don't know if you're ready to on the cuff, give a, a brief review. Oh, yeah, I can I can do that. So, Mr. Magoo, I really thought it was interesting, the framing device of having him be in a musical. It was just kind of weird. I don't know. I guess they needed some excuse for Mr. Magoo to be singing. That was, to me, very, it was just unique. But the really unique thing was Ghost of Christmas Present appearing before Ghost of Christmas Past. And the more I thought about it, I actually really like this narrative decision. Because if you have Ghost of Christmas Present come first, you see, here's the way things are. We have your family who kind of mocks you, who you kind of left out of. And you have Cratchit, who is has a sick son. And that's just kind of laying the table. And then you go to Ghost of Christmas Past, and you see how things got to be that way. It kind of takes you on the emotional roller coaster to get there. And then it switches to the gut punch of the future. This is what's going to happen if you don't change. To me, it's a more compelling emotional arc if you actually have 
goes to Christmas present first, which I never would have thought of if I hadn't seen Mr. Magoo do it first. So kudos to that storytelling innovation. I actually liked it. It's kind of like Star Wars machete order. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that's it is like that because that's four, five, then two, three and then six. Right. Yeah. So it's like you see how things are. And then before Return of the Jedi, that's when you get Anakin's backstory. And I just liked the notion of Razzleberry gravy. I wanted to see what that tasted like. So Razzleberry, I have found out in recent years, is real. Really? It's like blackberries and raspberries mixed together. I've never heard that before. I don't know if woofle jelly is real, though. Because <laughs> they also talk about woofle jelly cake. It was weird they hung that on the tree. I know that's a thing. You put treats on the tree. That's never been a part of my Christmas tradition. It just seems kind of weird to be hanging on the pine needles and everybody's hands and stuff. Yeah, especially if it's like jam and bread. <laughs> oh, I just think it's interesting how early Mr. Magoo was. Like 1962 was two whole years before Rudolph, which is kind of heralded as a trailblazer in every year you got to put out TV Christmas specials. Oh, interesting. So this was like kind of the first stab at a, or an early stab at a family Christmas special that everybody can watch that's in like a known style or a known intellectual property or something. Right. That's cool. Yeah, that's some good historical context. That, that raises my opinion of it a little bit. All right, I'm going to jump to 2004, A Christmas Carol, the musical, which we've been calling Frasier, starring Kelsey Grammer. I thought this one was fine. I thought it was pretty good. I liked the music. I like Alan Menken songs in general. I thought the production values weren't as high as either of the other live action ones, but I liked it. And I really loved the Marley song, which we talked a lot about with Jason Alexander. I also liked another scenario where I made some changes to the revered source material that actually worked pretty well for me. Overall, it wasn't 100%. I felt like it made the impact of the moments when Belle, but in this case, Emily walks away. It's a little different. It, it didn't, it's not as much of like an icy knife as it is in the other ones here. But I also mentioned that this was the Belle slash Emily that I was most smitten with. The one that stole my heart. So yeah, I thought this was maybe the least remarkable of them other than the, the story changes, but I did enjoy it. I, it actually... For a TV movie, I thought it was quite good. Yeah, this one had some contradictions for me. The cinematography is very simple. It's clearly a TV movie. But it does have a huge cast. There's elaborate costumes. The score is decent. A lot of the lyrics I enjoyed again. It's almost hard to talk about some of the songs individually in this one because they do a lot of sung through style and also a lot of recitative in this one. Frazier is always stringing things together with articulate rhymes that kind of bleed one song into the next sometimes. With There's a few exceptions, but it's not strictly numbers. It's, as you said, it's sung through. It's, it's, it's a little different than some of these others, which are more driven by the numbers. And I do like the expansions and changes to what we usually see in the past. They seem to try in this one to depict Scrooge as being self-made and that that's a big reason for his stinginess. 
and it kind of gives it more of a through line when it leads to him breaking up with Belle, and it's less sudden, and, and you're right that it robs that of a little of its usual impact. I do like that we got to see a moment when Marley and Scrooge are doing their money lending thing, and it's almost like a little, like heist movie montage almost like a lot of little quick cuts of them doing these transactions and climbing in the business ranks until we see a moment of them refusing to lend money to Fezziwig. Like Fezziwig is there at their counter window and, well, please, you got to help me out. I helped you out. And then they turn him away. And that's something I've never seen before. And it's like, oh, gut punch. They're yeah. hurting Fezziwig. Yeah, it's an extra layer that makes his break bad even more impactful i agree lastly muppet christmas carol for me this is easily my favorite of the four that we watched i like basically everything about it i really like having charles dickens narrating and getting more of his prose in there it just adds to the aura to the drama i feel like that's a little divisive but for me it worked and i even thought it worked to have the clash of the silliness of the Muppets and Rizzo with the more austere drama of Dickens. I I just think overall this, that one really works. It doesn't have anything too much to complain about. I mean, it's maybe hard to herald it as a masterpiece when it has that distinct clash. But to me, this one is just, it has the strongest music. I overall enjoy it the most. Now I will say that it's probably somewhat influenced by my uh, nostalgia because this is the one that I have been watching since I was a kid. Sure. But yeah, I like this one a lot. It holds up. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of this one. It's pretty dark and serious for a Muppet project and it sticks to the original work. Yeah. I was watching as I was thinking it, like there were parts of be like, oh, this would be really fun to watch with my three-year-old. And then you get the ghost of Christmas future. By the way, I love having the ghosts as puppets. That, to me, I know it's kind of weird in general to have a mix of humans and, and puppets, but having the ghosts as puppets, I really liked. And But when that ghost of Christmas future, Christmas yet to come, comes out, they don't skimp on the creepiness of that. We've been talking for 18 years about A Christmas Carol already, but I could talk for quite a while more on puppetry potential in this story. Mm. I think we got to come back next year and talk specifically puppets. Okay, okay. Maybe Christmas puppets. Maybe next year we watch four Christmas puppet movies. That's a possibility. Our holiday bonanza. Well, yes. So that one, it's the first Muppet movie since Jim Henson died and also Richard Hunt. So the original Statler and Waldorf were gone. Obviously, Jim Henson has a huge footprint in the Muppets. They're his creation. Uh, So it's nice to see that they were able to carry on creatively after he was gone. And I think the devices of this one went over so well or well enough that a lot of them persist into the next movie too, because they followed it up with Muppet Treasure Island and it still has Gonzo and Rizzo in big roles. So I think this movie has got a legacy for sure. Yeah. I like the template. It's been a long time since I've seen Muppet Treasure Island, but I would definitely watch a line of classic literature adapted in this marriage of Muppet silliness and uh, literary drama. I'm down for it. Yeah. Almost like Wishbone, you know? I love Wishbone. We gotta, we gotta talk some more Wishbone on another day. I know we've already had a long and gimmicky episode, but because I'm me, I had one more small gimmick and we can go through it real quick if you don't mind. 
Okay. This is my, if I were making a musical right now of Christmas Carol in 2020, who would I cast? So for the main roles, here's what I came up with. You're welcome to reply. And I came up with a backup for each one too. So for Scrooge, okay, you ready? We just watched, we just talked about it two weeks ago. Kate and Leopold. We know that Jackman can sing. Hugh Jackman is my Scrooge in my 2020 uh, Christmas Carol. Okay, I'm already buying a ticket. I'm already buying the Blu-ray. <laughs> my backup, if, if Jackman's booked, is we talked about High School Musical last week. He's another recent connection. What did Kenny Ortega also direct? Newsies. What about Christian Bale as your intense Scrooge? I could, I could see that. That would be interesting. I thought you were going to say Zac Efron. No, I, I realized you could think I was saying that as I was saying it. But no, uh, Christian Bale, I think, could be a Scrooge. For my Belle, my first pick, and I don't know if you know this actress. Uh, I've brought her up at least once in previous episodes. Kristen Milioti. So she was the mother in How I Met Your Mother. And she was also in Palm Springs. She was the first wife in Wolf of Wall Street. So she just projects this warmth and she can sing. I would give her a number. I think she would just be an incredible belle. She's, I mean, she's also beautiful and could steal your heart. I guess I like the brunettes is what we're learning today. My backup is Anna Kendrick, who can also sing and also has that kind of warmth about her. My Marley, I kind of like it when Marley's kind of weird. I came up with Lin-Manuel Miranda and maybe he could have like a half-wrapped sort of wordplay-ish number as marley i also think if you wanted to go really weird and intense you could have johnny depp be marley although i know that he's controversial at the moment i will say that the most recent version we covered the 2004 one did make me wonder what lynn would do with it yeah there was also a 2020 version and if i'm not mistaken it actually stole some of my castings but that was a non-musical and it was a computer animation one so you weren't actually seeing the people. Oh. I think Jackman might have played Marley or, or uh, someone, maybe Fezziwig, or I can't remember. So this is not here nor there, but in the 2004 version, I thought it was Stephen Colbert as Fezziwig, oh. but it isn't. It's just a guy who looks a little <laughs> yeah. bit like him, but I think Colbert would be good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. For Ghost of Christmas Past, I came up with Kristen Bell. She's kind of got the baby-faced elements. My backup would be Emma Stone. I think she would be a fun Ghost of Christmas Past. She's maybe a little too playful. Maybe you need someone a little more dire there. I don't know. But that's what I thought of. Ghost of Christmas Present. So (laughs) you're going to think this is an interesting one. Bear with me here. What if Ghost of Christmas Present, affable, laughs a lot, you want to hang out with him, you want to drink with him, maybe get inebriated in other ways with him. Seth Rogen as your ghost of Christmas present. I like that. I don't think that's controversial. If you want a different direction, Steve Carell could be a fun ghost of Christmas present too, I think. Of course, if it's if it were Seth Rogen, he'd be smoking an enormous blunt. Oh, yeah. With the munchies. And his eye, right. he'd have the bloodshot eyes. That would be right. a new take on celebrating the present with, with ghost of Christmas present. But I mean, I'm, I can see it in my head. Like he's in like a bathrobe and stuff. Exactly. Because the Christmas robes almost look like a bathrobe, you know? Yeah. My Bob Cratchit, you need someone who just projects like a helplessness, a good spirit, but like he's just kind of kind of doofy and really needs to get a backbone. 
And for me, the guy I came up with is Toby Maguire. I think he would be a very good Bob Cratchit. I'm always down to see Toby Maguire and more things. So my backup is I came up with Martin Freeman, but he actually is the voice of Cratchit in the 2020. Oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say you got to cast a Jim, whether it's American Jim or English Jim. <laughs> the uh, the other guy I came up with is Thomas Brody Sangster, who was in the Queen's Gambit. He was he's the kid in Love Actually. He's just kind of got a doleful helpless look about him he was in game of thrones too man now i'm thinking they just got to do a office or parks and rec style christmas carol where it's a mockumentary oh man i I haven't seen that yet that would be a good i like that let's do that yeah so i am ready to 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 do some is it good reviews of these four movies yeah let's slap some numerical values on these things we'll uh add them up in a ledger and be cold and clinical about our accounting so would you like to kick us off? You're our guest. Is it good? Our, we have an eight-point scale from very not good to tour day good. For me, Scrooge 1970 is very charming. Lots of really nice stuff in it. But enough of a downside for me. So I didn't really talk about this in the not-so-good things. I actually think the score is not very tuneful and hummable which is kind of a bummer for me. There's a couple of good numbers. And I, again, I, I think thank you very much is fantastic. I think the, the you song is a heartbreaker. I really enjoy how much Finney sells different moments, but the, the music itself, it's not something I'll be spinning the soundtrack for. Maybe it'll, it'll grow on me if I watch it again. And I also think Finney himself is just kind of annoying, even though the actor is good. I think the Scrooge grates over time. So for me, this is an upper end good. For this one, I'm wavering a little bit just because I also find Finney and the kind of obnoxious way he plays old Scrooge to weigh it down some. But I came in really, really ready to give this one a seven for exceptionally good. I think it just barely makes it into seven category. And maybe a lot of that is just being pleasantly surprised. This one kind of came out of nowhere for me. And... I like the score. It's got a sad, haunting quality to it throughout. I definitely spin it a lot as just kind of my like sad music playlist. You're right that it doesn't give you as much variety as some of the others. Uh, I think strongest score across the board goes to Muppets. So we'll, we'll give that one a number value soon. I don't know. I like the flavor of this one. I think aside from Scrooge's quirks, I like this one the best as an adaptation. I should probably flesh that out a little bit more, but listeners can uh, revisit the things that we've said. That's good. Make their own judgment. Check out the movie yourself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I stick this one with a seven. Exceptionally good. I'll definitely listen to and watch it again. And it's free on YouTube right now in pretty good quality. So yeah, I appreciated that. Moving on to Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. I enjoyed it. I, I had a decent enough time. I just felt kind of inessential. I appreciate its historical value as an influential Christmas special. And I liked the narrative switcheroo of doing Christmas present first. That said, it's out of the four of these, the one I feel least inclined to go back to, although it does have a nice short runtime. For me, this is kind of an upper end good-ish. It's a four out of eight for me. I give this one a good five. The animation is very simplistic. 
it just kind of gives you a quick run through the story. But I do like the songs. I especially like that the Undertakers and the creepy people get a song. When there's only like four numbers that they get one, I feel is significant. Although the animation is pretty plain, or maybe not plain, it's uh, it's not very flashy. It's still pretty good. I, I liked the animation. Um, there's a couple of interesting moments. There's one where he like looks out of a window. So it's kind of nice, but... Um, Moving on to 2004's A Christmas Carol the Musical, a.k.a. Frasier Christmas Carol. I liked it. It was just generic good for me. So it's kind of maybe a lower end on the good scale for me. I thought the music was pretty strong. I thought the, the acting was fine. I enjoyed seeing the twists on his origin. You know, it's kind of a, a breath of fresh air. On Can you think about Scrooge a little differently? So, yeah, it's kind of mid-lower end good for me. It's, it's, it's fine. I'll throw a five on this one, too. Good. That's because it, like, slingshotted around a lot for me. There were moments I found myself really won over and liking a lot of what they did, but then there were other moments that would set it back some. Right. The opening song, it's like, have a jolly good time tonight. It just seemed like nobody was into it. Like... Everybody involved was kind of phoning that one in, including the songwriters. <laughs> and it's like, why are we why are we even here? Why am I watching this? Why are you putting this together? But other moments shown, like the additions to the past, added something and made me look at the story a different way. There are some legitimately good performances in this one. So I think it was worthwhile. I think overall it was good that they made it, and I'm going to remember it. But it just yeah. gets a five from me. Shout out to... Jason Alexander, whose pretzels made him so thirsty that he became a, an old miser. I, I do like to imagine that this is just George Costanza in this role. <laughs> I, I, I think he would have some of the same traits as Marley. I can see that. Lastly, Muppet Christmas at Carol. So this is the one out of these that's getting my 7 out of 8. I really love this. I loved it again. I have fond memories of it, but just watching it, I was enraptured. By far the strongest songs, the ones that I'm really going to be humming to. and li- I, like I would listen to the soundtrack from start to finish, which I can't say of any of the others here. I just think it's great, and it somehow works when, if you had described the premise of a serious take on A Christmas Carol married to Muppet silliness, I would have been like, you're crazy. But as I mentioned, it works, and I want to see more of it, and it just makes my heart warm. So for me, this is a 7 out of 8. This one gets an exceptionally good for me as well. I alternate the soundtrack with Scrooge 1970. It's got a little more variety of flavor. I think it's got the strongest score, as I have probably mentioned a couple times. Some really powerhouse numbers here. You've got It Feels Like Christmas. Basically, every song is is well done. The Scrooge intro number, Marley's song, uh, just as a slate, the, this offers up the most. And it has grown on me over time. I didn't get exposed to this one super early on because it creeped me out, but I've watched it most years in the last handful of years, and it's well done, especially as the first film effort after Jim Henson wasn't there as a guiding hand anymore. And I think... It has no major weaknesses, too, which is really cool. Like, there's no yeah. part of it I'm like, eh, that part's kind of meh. It, it executes all components of the story well, in my opinion. And I mentioned I love the narrator. 
I, I like having Dickens telling us what's going on. And we get some clever quips about how do you know what's happening? Oh, I'm an omniscient narrator. I'm going to send you a review of a guy who admires the metastructural creativity of that and how it, it's just kind of fascinating to think about and how he disappears from the creepy part. And I don't know. It's, yeah, it's good. Well, it sounds like broadly we were pretty much in agreement this time around. I'm glad that we were able to take this very long chunk of time and shoot the breeze about adaptations of A Christmas Carol, because this is a story that has stuck with me for a long time. I'm sure that's true of a lot of people. Uh, I've just kind of always related to Scrooge, which is maybe not true for everybody. (laughs) He's a hyperbolic character, but I think they do make him sympathetic and a little more multidimensional than just strictly flat. You know, maybe when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you see your own problems in the media that you consume. But I just relate to his status of being unlucky in love. And this being a tragic romance is very prominent in my appreciation for it. And I I think it's significant that of all the things that he sees and is going to like turn around on, that's the one thing that he is past the point of no return on. He can't fix that. Right. I like to think maybe... He goes and sees where what she's up to these, these days, but she's probably married and has a family. So Yeah. Well, listeners, you're probably tired of hearing our voices. I'm certainly tired of hearing Brian's voice. No, I'm just kidding. But No, that's fair. I got a weird voice. <laughs> uh, probably not as weird as mine. Uh, this has been two marathon episodes in a row. I'm going to hit us with something shorter next week. Next week, Brian, I'm going to ask you to watch a movie that I was pretty sure you had not seen, and then I noticed that it is now in the public domain. So for all I know, you have seen it because you are a horror host of public domain material. Um, This is one I just happened to hear about recently, and I just thought would be a change of pace for us. This is a 1950 film noir called DOA. Huh. No, I haven't heard of this one. So um, it's got a very interesting premise I don't know how far it comes in. This was sold to me on the premise that I thought sounded really fun. So I'll give you the bare bones version of it. But it's a film noir with a murder mystery, except the murder victim is unexpected, let's say. So um, I will leave it to that. Um, It's kind of a unique take on a murder mystery. So I'm thinking it'll be fun for us to do another older movie. Another uh, crime movie, a drama, film noir. We haven't talked about any noirs. So this this should be an interesting conversation for us. And it's only 84 minutes. It's it's not uh, 718 or whatever High School Musical ended up being. Yeah, it sounds like we'll hit some new territory after watching eight musicals in two weeks. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man, good point. I didn't even think about that. Well, I look forward to it. And I hope you do too, listeners. Thank you for joining us once again on The Goods.